going to go through, I'm going to do teaching this morning out of Genesis chapter 3. It's titled, Sin, the Devil, and Grace. Sin, the Devil, and Grace will be teaching. Uh, our main text will be Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we'll hit some other references um, in the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament to, to give us understanding. <clears throat> I do want to say this, though. At the end of the gathering, I'm going to make a very simple and straight-to-the-point invitation to ask anybody in here, uh, if you wouldn't consider yourself a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus, if you would like to become one. And the reason why I tell you that now is because you have 35 minutes to consider that. Um, and I, I genuinely do believe that that's the greatest invitation that any of us could ever receive and accept. When we do that, what we're saying is, God, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and the Savior of my soul, and I trust him and I'm going to give my whole life over to him. Not just to be a cultural Christian, because there's that reality in our society. You can be a Christian in America and not follow the ways of Jesus. And I'm not condemning that reality, but that's also not what I'm inviting you into. I'm inviting you, if you would like to accept that invitation, to say, God, I surrender my life to you. I desperately need you to save my soul because I can't save it myself. And I want to learn your ways and follow your life. And if you want to receive that invitation, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. The reason why I ask you to do that is because like what Craig talked about earlier, community is so necessary for us doing that successfully. Following Jesus has been both the best decision that I have ever made in my life and the hardest decision that I have ever made in my life. And it weren't, if it weren't for community around me, I may have given up at this point. Because just to be totally honest, and you should know this before you accept that invitation, it's incredibly hard to follow Jesus at times. But it is so worth it. And there's nothing like it. And I just pray to God that there's nothing ever in my heart that says I would rather have something else. Because God is so good. And Jesus loves us so much. And if it means being crazy to the rest of the world following him, then I'll be crazy. I told someone one time, I, I have uh, relationships with people who work in um, psychiatric units. And when I was telling them about what I believe about Jesus, and she was looking at me kind of cockeyed. And I was like, maybe I'm the crazy one. <laughs> See you in the unit. No, just kidding. <laughs> But seriously, following Jesus is crazy to the rest of the world. When we step into his life and his teachings, it's totally different than the rest of the way the world views life and meaning and significance in the best possible way. But it's hard and it's costly. But again, it's so worth it and there's nothing like it. So that's the invitation that you'll receive. If you already know, you're ready. Get ready. But if you're not sure, again, 32 more minutes, um, and you can make that decision. Sin, the devil, and grace. Sin, a Baptist preacher's favorite subject. The devil, the charismatic movement's favorite subject. You guys think it's funny. Thank you. The other two gatherings were like, what? Or they're like, don't say that. And grace, 
the most important reality that humanity has ever known. My point tonight, today, I always do that. It's today, Sunday at 11, is to talk about grace. Talk, sorry, I'll start with sin. To talk about sin, not to give you a list of sinful behaviors. We're all well aware of what those things are. But to really get to the heart and the, the depth of why we sin. Because I think if we do that, we can take the power back. In regards to the devil, I do not want to give him a lot of publicity and time. Because we already do, and he's not worthy of it. But I do think it's important, especially as Americans in the context we live in today, because Hollywood has kind of tried to steal the dark and spiritual world from us and make us think that it's not actually real, but it's very real. And we need to be aware that there is an adversary, there is an enemy who's trying to steal and kill and destroy our soul. But if we can recognize him for what he is, again, we can take any type of authority and power that he's trying to exercise over us and leverage it against him to walk in the freedom that Jesus has for us. And then in, in regards to grace, I'm not going to give you anything new. If you're like, there's a 26-year-old kid who's going to give us a new version of grace, that should scare you. I'm just going to give you the personal revelation that I've had from the scriptures and the, own, the transformation in my heart that's really changed my life. Very recently, actually. I've been following Jesus for about eight years. I've been a pastor for four years. And just a couple of weeks ago, I had this realization of what I think grace really is. And it has totally changed who I am. Like I was just standing in the back as we were singing the songs, just thinking to myself, I, I can't even understand what's going on inside of me. Like I get it, but I'm just like in awe of who God is and what he has done in my life. And I hope to to put that before you and, and hope that it somehow resonates inside of you as well. So here we go to the scriptures. I'm going to read you one text before we get to our main text, which is Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. If you're between the ages of 18 and 30... This is an important teaching, just a quick, brief teaching for you. Prior to sin and the fall, God created us to work. Seriously. Connor. Connor, prior to sin and the fall, you were created to work. I'm talking to myself as well, because it is my tendency at times to want to live very easily with as little resistance as possible and think that everything should be given to me. And I think that there, there needs to be something that wakes up in the church in America where we rediscover the holiness and the worship that is work. Because there is beauty in it and there's worship in it. And, there's, and that's how we're going to reach the world, by the way. Like, there's... That's a rabbit trail. I shouldn't go there. Here we go. It's not the point. But it's, it's a good thought. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God being good and being knowing said to his creation, there's all this stuff that you can enjoy. But I've set boundaries in place for you to protect you, to preserve you, because I know you better than you know yourself. All the parents in the room get this right now. You set boundaries for your kids because your kids have no idea what they're doing. It's really important for us to understand that foundationally as we go into Genesis chapter 3 and we talk about sin, the devil, and grace. From the onset, God is so good. He created this beautiful, wonderful creation, and he set boundaries in place for us to protect us, to keep us, so that we could always experience the fullness of who he was. Now you guys know how the story goes, so we'll jump in to the turn of events. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, be very careful of things that look good, smell good, sound good. And be very careful just to immediately indulge in them because of those things. Because they may be the very trap that will decay and destroy your soul. And that tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the scripture that we have come to know as the fall of man. Where humanity has this moment where they sin and they separate themselves from God. What I want to do right now is talk specifically about sin and what I think we should learn from the scriptures in regards to what sin really is at its core. For a long, long time when we've talked about sin, we have uh, used the word, the Greek word that we often see is harmartia, which means to miss the mark. And that's when we think about sin, that's what we think about. We think about this missing of this mark, this falling short. Have any of you ever fell short of the standard that someone has had for you before? All the married couples are shaking their head, yes. All the husbands who know what's best for them are shaking their head, yes. We, we miss the mark, we fall short. There was a standard, an expectation of what type of actions we would have and the actions that we actually choose fall short of that standard. And that's what we believe sin to be. It's this uh, perspective, and our, our context has often been, when I do the right things, God is pleased with me. When I do the wrong things, it's sin, and he's upset with me, and he's going to punish me. Now, I want to propose to you this morning that sin is 
about behavior. And through our behavior, we understand sin. But behavior is a secondary reality when it comes to sin. Think about it this way. You work for a company, most of us do, or an organization or whatever it might be. There are rules in place for you as an employee in that company. There's an expectation for your behavior. And you know that if you do the right things and you do your job well, you'll be rewarded for it. Maybe that reward is not a raise. It might just be that you get to keep your job, but, but you're in good standing. But if you break those rules and you violate the standard, you'll lose your job more than likely, or maybe you get three strikes, whatever it is. But there's consequences for you falling short of the standard. And there's always an authority figure above you who takes the responsibility to make sure that those consequences get put in place and that you experience that. But the the hard part about that reality, sometimes why so much of us do have a hard time with work is we have these people that we're trying to do the right things for so we can be rewarded by them. And we have these people who we know are going to punish us or, or discipline us or correct us if we do the wrong things, yet we don't have any relationship with those people. So when we get rewarded, it's kind of not that significant and meaningful. And then when we get punished, we get really frustrated, we get really upset, we get really angry because even though maybe we recognize we're worthy of that discipline, we don't have a relationship with the person who's punishing us. And we wonder what is the meaning of this or the significance of this or how is it going to actually help me? And I think the problem in the church today is because we've made sin about behavior, right and wrong actions, we have taken the relationship element out of this whole equation. So when we do the right things, we think that God is going to reward us and honor us. But when we do the wrong things, we're waiting for him to punish us. And we perpetuate this reality where we're so consumed with our behavior, right and wrong. And I'm not saying that right and wrong behavior is not important. Hear me loud and clear, just for the record, for Facebook, for all the theologians in the room, I think that there is a moral standard in law, okay? I'm not saying that we can just do whatever we want and that's okay. But the core issue with sin is not the actual manifestations or the behaviors that are defining it for us. The core issue is why we sin. Someone who's an alcoholic doesn't just drink alcohol because they just really, really like to drink alcohol and and that's and they just want to wrong God or wrong, you know, and they want to destroy their lives. That's not why. If you think about it, let's think about it from a different context. If you've ever played a sport or an instrument or, you know, you've done something where you're performing or you're, you're trying to, to practice something at a certain level, if you fall short of the expectation that you have for yourself that you would consider success or greatness, you recognize, why, you recognize what you did or where you fell short, but our first question is always, why did that happen? Like, I played basketball, and when I miss a shot... At this point, it happens pretty frequently, and I'm just kind of okay with it. But when I was a lot younger and I was playing for something that was valuable, when I would, when I would miss, immediately I would think, was it, what, what was it that went wrong that caused me to miss? It wasn't so much the miss in and of itself. The miss was just revealing to me that something was going on, something greater, something more important. 
And that's what our behavior is doing. It's revealing to us that something is wrong inside of us. But the question is, what is wrong inside of us? And this is what I want to propose to you this morning. What I think sin is as we see it from the scriptures. And the reason why I'm going to put this before you again is because if we can have this realization, we can recognize it for what it is and we can take the power back from it over our lives. This is what sin is. As we see in the scriptures, I think here in Genesis chapter 3. Sin is not Adam and Eve choosing to eat of the fruit, although that revealed that something sinful had happened. Sin is Adam and Eve saying, God, I no longer trust you. So I'm going to do whatever it is that I desire. Sin is us not trusting God. Very simple. We do the things that we do that are sinful and are destroying us and destructive to other people and because at some capacity we don't trust God to satisfy and heal and provide the things that our soul is most longing for. So my question for you this morning is, do you trust God? It's the most important question. And when I say God, just for the record, I'm talking about the God that this book we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, reveals to us. Do you trust that God? Because in my opinion, as much as I can understand, he's really the only one who's trustworthy based on what we're really designed for and what we're desiring. And particularly because this is the other problem or elephant in the room that I think we should address. It's very easy to trust God when things are good. But do you trust this God when things are bad? Or undesirable? Or atrocious? And that's for you to answer. I do think he's trustworthy, and I hope that you feel that way as well. But I'm literally just putting that before you this morning. Because what we have to understand about this decision that we make, when Adam and Eve chose to trust God, they got to experience the fullness of his goodness and his presence. But when they said, God, I no longer trust you, they stepped outside of that, and there are consequences for it. In Romans, it says that the wages of sin is death. So it's really important for us to understand what is our answer to that question. Because the destruction and the chaos and the hurt and the pain in our life is not from God. It's the byproduct of thousands of years of human beings choosing to say, God, we no longer trust you. We're going to go out on our own way. We're going to try to figure this out on our own. And even though at times or at moments there have been glory and there have been good things and there has been wonder, there's been a lot of evil and pain and chaos and injustice. So we have to ask ourselves the most important question. Do we trust God? Someone might say, Connor, the most important question is, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. To believe in Jesus is to trust God. Do you trust God? Would you like some? Uh, I guess you don't know what I'm going to say, so asking you, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> let, me, let me do this just real quickly. Can you take a little more weight? Let me ask you that. Okay, the purpose of it is ultimately to help us. 
I just want to focus on sin a little bit longer, not to condemn us or make us feel sin conscious, but, but to reveal and expose it. One of, the th- one of the sinful behaviors that I wrote down that I wanted to address the core of to help people be free from it, the first one is unforgiveness. Now, you immediately, if you have unforgiveness, you might be frustrated that I even called unforgiveness sin, and I, I can understand that. The nature of unforgiveness is that we have been wronged or we have been pained, and rightfully so, we should be upset, and that pain is very real, and it's not wrong for you to, to recognize that pain. But to harbor unforgiveness, what we're really doing is we're saying, God, I don't trust you to be just. And I don't trust your judgment upon the person who has wronged me. So I'm going to try and take control of the situation. And I'm going to try to harbor anger. I'm going to try to harbor bitterness. I'm going to try to harbor everything that comes with my unforgiveness and the emotions. And I'm going to try to use it as a weapon against that person so that they can kind of feel what they gave to me. But friends, any type of wrath or judgment that we could put upon another person in response to the wrong that they've done to us doesn't even compare to what God could provide, for one. But also, the, the deception of unforgiveness is, it's actually not really hurting the person that you don't forgive very much. It's, it's decaying our own souls. Like, if the devil wants us to be sitting in anything, it's unforgiveness. Because he knows that in that place, it eats away at our soul so significantly. And I'll say to you, if you have unforgiveness, again, it's probably for good reason in terms of you've probably experienced real pain and hurt. I'm not, I'm not negating that. I'm not trying to underplay that. But the hope of the gospel is that everything has been forgiven. And that God has forgiven us and he's going to forgive other people. He will be just and judge appropriately where it's needed and we can trust God with that. But he loves us so much that he can set us free from that. And we can let go of that unforgiveness and trust him to judge people accordingly. Think about substance abuse, whether it's alcohol or drug or food. Food is a drug. We need to start talking about that in in the American church. The reason why we turn to these things impulsively and we overindulge and we overconsume is because we're trying to numb a pain or we're trying to numb an emotion or we're trying to escape from our reality. Because we don't trust God to intervene in it and provide the healing and the satisfaction that we need. Is alcoholism sinful? Yes, it is. But the issue is not necessarily the alcohol and the amount of consumption, although that's, we should talk about those things and work through those things. The issue is we are trying to be our own healer and saver, savior. And all that we can turn to is whatever it is that's before us that we have access to. And it numbs us for a moment or it makes us feel good for a moment, but it always leaves us wanting more. So we just, we go further and further down the rabbit hole until we've totally destroyed our lives. And it's because we, we don't trust God. So do you trust God?
we're going to get to the good news. I'm going to just talk about the devil for literally just like a couple minutes. I talked more about it in the other messages, but I just don't think we need to give it much time. This is what it comes down to. In the scriptures, when we see the word Satan or the devil, and as we see it in Genesis chapter 3, this here, what's happening with the serpent, the devil doesn't actually have any real authority and power over us. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a war going on for our soul, a real one. What we understand the devil to be from the scriptures is that he is, Satan means accuser or deceiver. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is, it's actually ironic, he's a serpent, and these are human beings that he's deceived to sin. He didn't wrap them up, he didn't bite them, he didn't, he just put lies in front of them. Sometimes we're like, the devil did this to me. No, the devil didn't. The devil deceived you into doing something because you don't trust God. And the consequences of that was some form of destruction. The reason why that's important is we give way too much power to the devil. He doesn't have any power over us. Is his voice loud? Is his bark loud? Is it aggressive and violent and evil? Absolutely. But does he have power and authority over us? Not at all. Not at all. Zero. He's just a barker. There's no bite. If you're feeling bite right now, again, it's, it's not the devil. The consequences of the choices that we made because we didn't trust God. So here's what we have to do. It's interesting when, as we see in verses 8 through 13, God comes and he meets, and we're going to talk about this in the grace section in just a moment, but I want to point this out in regards to the devil God comes, and Adam and Eve are hiding, they're naked, and they say to him, we, we hid from your presence because we were afraid of you, because we were naked. And he, it's really interesting, God says this to them, he said, who told you that you were naked? All the lies that you believed about yourself, and this is what the, what the lies of the enemy want us to do, they want us to question God's authority. Right? When the serpent is deceiving Eve, he says, did God really say? You remember when you're in elementary school and your bad influenced friends were like, did your parents really say you shouldn't do that? Because they're trying to get you to do what you're not supposed to do. So that you can question, well, did they really say? Maybe they didn't say. Maybe I can do that. And then you did it. And then... Yeah, I don't know what your story was. Yeah, I was going to give you an example of mine, but it would paint an improper picture of who my parents were. They were really great people, but they scared me sometimes. (laughs) They never hurt me, but they scared me sometimes. He wants us to question God's authority, ultimately, so we can destroy our identity. Pastor John Mark Comer, who's in Portland, he says it this way. What the devil's job is, is to sell you on anything he knows will destroy you. But we have all the power and authority. But what we have to do is recognize where that lie came from. 
and say it has no authority over me. So all the thoughts, here's the reality, because there is this war going on in our heads. And, and again, I, I had this thought this week. I wrote it down. If you're taking notes and it's helpful, helpful to you, I, I wrote this thought out. The, the war for our soul is happening on the battlefield of our mind. Because the devil, our enemy, is a deceiver. And he just puts these... There's sometimes where I have these thoughts in my head, and I'm like, where did that even come from? I'm like a decent guy. Why did I just think about doing that? Have you ever been there? You just have like crazy thoughts, or maybe your thoughts aren't that crazy, but your whole life you've been told that you're worthless. And you've been abused. So you ha- you're having all these thoughts about worthlessness and abuse. That's from the devil to try to deceive you into destruction. But God, God loves you way too much. He did not give his son because he viewed anybody as worthless. Now, I'm recognizing, and I, I hope that you feel this, that fight is the hardest fight that we'll ever face. We're living in a society, in a culture, in a country right now where mental illness is running rampant. And it's because we've had an improper understanding of what the attack of the enemy actually is. It wasn't the nail in your tire this week. That's not what the devil's trying, that, he didn't do that. There was just a nail in the street that got stuck in your tire. <laughs> Seriously, and that's a light one. I won't go into the other big ones that, I, that are just my opinion, things we think are from the devil. What's really from the devil is the lies in our head about our identity and our value and our worth that are trying to destroy our souls, that are driving us crazy, so crazy to the point of very intense mental illnesses. And, and just for the church, there's a lot of science and there's a lot of psychology and physiology behind mental illness, right? Sometimes we're like, we don't give any credence to Western medicine and and what science is revealing us. Friends, science reveals to us how God has created us. Science does not have to be in opposition of God. Science is actually submitted to God. He is the creator. All science is meant to do is to reveal to us who our creator is and the way that he's created us. But what I've told my friends who work in medicine and who are not necessarily followers of Jesus yet is don't discredit the fact that there's a real spiritual war that's going on in each and every one of us. So yeah, there is trauma that has shaped the brain that's caused imbalances and these different things, but there's an accuser, there's a deceiver, his name is Satan, and he's feeding these lies into all these people, those voices, multiple personalities that they're hearing. That's just the devil posing himself as all these different voices, and those people haven't been told yet that they can say that that doesn't have any authority over them, that they can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God so they can walk free from that. And it's crazy intense, but we can fight it. We have all power over it and all authority over it. But we really have to start fighting with the right tools on the right ground so that we can can take what's been given to us. Amen? Amen. Devil's a liar. 
He has no authority over us. Here's the really good part. Are you ready? Part three, grace. I'll have a Topher. You can come up, brother. Only sometimes if you knew the things that were going on in my head, like I said. <laughs> I, told, I was telling my mom last night, I'm kind of like a conversationalist when I speak. I'm not like, I have notes and all this stuff, but like, we're really just, it comes off as a monologue, but for me, it's a dialogue. This is who I am in all contexts and settings, you know? It's just like, so I have thoughts in my head, and sometimes I have to control them and not just put them out there before you. So, If I, like, stop and pause and laugh, I'm okay, I promise, all right? I'm not bipolar, I'm not. Maybe I am, I don't know. Back to the scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Like, iPod, iPad keeps trying to turn off. It's the devil. <laughs> I'm just hitting the wrong button, you know? Back to the scriptures, Connor. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Friends, do not skip over this. Now, if God... So here's the context. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've disobeyed God, and they know the consequences of that, and God knows that they've done that. And the writer of this book wants to tell us and make note that God came to them in the cool of the day. Have you ever been in like a state or a country where it's so hot that no amount of water or fans, you know, it's like it's hot and it's 110% humidity. And it's like, if you could tear your skin off and get cool, you would do it. But there's nothing you can do to escape the heat. And like, you feel like the, it's almost like the wrath of it, really, naturally. If the author wanted us to know that when we sin, God feels that towards us, he would have said that he came in the heat of the day. He says it comes in the cool of the day. He doesn't say they came in the darkness of the night. You ever been out, like my parents used to tell me nothing good happens after 10 p.m.? <laughs> Literally. I don't know, really. At, well, I don't know. Maybe between 10 and 10.30, you can figure out something holy. You know, like Bible study goes a little bit too long. You're speaking in tongues and praying over each other. People get slain, all that stuff. Maybe, you know. But at some point in time in the night, bad things happen it's just over and over again. But there's also this kind of natural paranoia and fear that comes with darkness. God is not the God who comes in the night to scare us so that we would constantly walk in this place of fear and paranoia. He's the God who comes in the cool of the day. The reason why I want to note that, grace, often when we think about grace, we think about it as a gift that God is giving us. That's the language that we've used as the church for a long time. And, and, and grace, God gives us gifts because of his grace. But again, that's secondary to what grace actually is. And I think the problem, if we just limit it, before I tell you what I, I think the Bible is telling us that it actually is, I think if we just limit it to gifts, 
and materials, we will become desensitized to what God's grace actually is. Because we live in a society, ironically, that has way too much stuff and is discontent and dissatisfied, yet we have all of this abundance. And I wonder if that perspective at times creeps into our hearts as Jesus followers and we think God's grace towards me is the gifts that he gives me. Or it's him showing up when I've sinned and I want to get out of the sin. I don't want to deal with the consequences. It's him showing up and letting me off the hook. How many times or how many of you have at one point in time, you've genuinely sinned. You've done something because you don't trust God. And you, even though you believe in God's grace and you know God has grace for you, there were still consequences for that. If we think of God's gift, grace just as a gift, when, that, when we don't get let off the hook... What we say is, well, God's grace didn't extend to me because he didn't bail me out. When grace just becomes a gift, when our circumstances are good, God is good. When our circumstances are bad, God is absent. And that's not what we see here. We see a story, a narrative where humanity blatantly disobeyed God and his grace is that he would meet us where we are in the fullness of his presence with pleasure and love towards us. Not our sin. God is not pleased with our sin, but we are not our sin. You know what I mean? Do you understand the difference there? There is sin inside of us, but we are human beings created in the image of God to experience the fullness of his presence and his creation. And he views us through that lens. The, the Greek word for grace is in what we see in the New Testament in its language is the word charis. It's the word we get charity from. And what that word is communicating, if you go look it up, it's not talking about just giving gifts. And let me say this, salvation is a gift. Just again, for the sake of sound doctrine, salvation is a gift. But we are given salvation. What does John 3.16 say, say? For God so loved for God so had, he had so much emotion, he had so much pleasure, he had so much affection towards his creation that he gave. Have you ever been given a gift from someone who hates you? <laughs> or maybe you've been the gift giver for someone you're like, just reluctantly like, yeah, have it. And how often do we feel that way? in regards to who God is. Like he gives us stuff, but we wonder, does he actually love me? Because we've made grace and we made sin about these temporal measurable things apart from the context of relationship, but it's all about relationship, friends. Righteousness is not just about doing the right things. Righteousness is about Mutually having a loving relationship with the creator of the universe. And grace is knowing that when we do fall, that God comes to us with his presence, waiting for us to turn back to him, willingly being able to freely give us what we don't deserve and to redeem us from our sin. I have been going through, you can stand up, we're going to close. 
I've been going through this process in the last two weeks. I just recently had that realization as I was studying these scriptures. And for so long, even subconsciously, when I would do the right things, I was just, you know, I knew that God would be pleased with me and would reward me. But I was always so afraid if I ever sinned, if I ever made a mistake, that God was going to withhold something for me. It was going to set me back. And there might be consequences. Again, I'm not saying that God is just going to bail us out every time. But the good news of the gospel, like let me go to an extreme real quick. If, if you go, this is, you're going to be awed, kind of shocked by this example. So let me preface it with that. If you go murder someone today, you're probably going to jail. Okay? But God's grace can meet you there. Because God's grace is more than just a gift. It says in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the one who died for the ungodly, not the godly, the ungodly. The one who saw a broken and evil people who disobeyed him and constantly left him, but was still so consumed with so much love for them that he gave his only son. He did whatever he had to do to bring them home. I've been having, I'm in this place where my life has got way too much stuff going on right now. And I'm really, at times, very, very overwhelmed by that. And because of that, there are times where sometimes I I fall short, I make mistakes, and I feel the weight of it, and other people feel the weight of it, and it's just kind of been consuming me lately. And then I I was reading the scripture, and I felt like God revealed to me, Connor, my grace to you is not me bailing you out. It's much greater than that. It's much deeper than that. My grace to you is even though you've gotten yourself kind of in this chaotic place and, you know, all this different stuff, that I still have incredible pleasure towards you. So I've literally just been in these moments where I'm like, I can feel, at least for me, it's probably honestly a lot of first world problems. It's not that crazy. But at least for me, sometimes it it feels really chaotic. And I'm just like so overwhelmed. And I just, I just sense God being like, dude, just chill out. If I love you and you embrace that, it's all going to figure it out. It's all going to work out. Like I've been thinking about Romans chapter 8 where it says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do we believe that? Because for me, for a long time, there were a lot of things where I was like, that has separated me from God's love. And I've just recently, I've just been like, there's literally nothing that can separate me from God's love. So what do I have to worry about? What do I have to be afraid of? Nothing can separate me. Because he's gone to the deepest parts of our soul and our depravity and overcome it so that we would have a way out and a hope. Do you trust God? Are you willing to say, devil, you're a liar? 
And do you know how much God loves you? He loves us so much. I honestly, I'll just be very vulnerable right now. I feel a little bit like cliche and kind of like insecure even saying that because it's like sometimes it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't feel the way it sounds. But I just know that he loves me more than I could ever imagine. And there's something shifting inside of me. And we need to get that. He loves us so much. It's insane. Like I really think, this is my prayer. I'm going to do, I'm going to, this is an actual prayer, but I'm going to talk and my eyes are open. So just know it's a prayer. (laughs) I'm just kind of mocking sometimes of our culture. Sorry. This is what prayer is. This is my prayer. (laughs) Prophesying this over our, our community and I. I hope God's people, particularly in America, for so long, in different times, we've been walking around so defeated, like we don't have victory. And it has to end. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't still a a battle going on. Like we see this language in the New Testament, fight the good fight of faith, run the race with endurance. I'm not saying we're just going to like step into this ease and this like, because life is a battle. But like Craig said earlier, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. You have all the joy already available to you. You have all the peace already available to you. You have all the wisdom already available to you. The way we access it is we just say, God, I trust you. It says in James that if we, if we just ask God, he freely, without any judgment, gives to us. Because of his grace. Do you trust him? Are you willing to tell the devil that he's a liar? And do you know how much he loves you?